you take your copies of God's Word, please turn in them to Matthew chapter 5. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. I call your attention this morning to verses 27 through 30. Matthew chapter 5. Please follow along as I read verses 27 through 30. Jesus, continuing in this Sermon on the Mount, says, verse 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray once more. Dear Father in heaven, we pray that you would humble us before your word this morning. You have told us through the prophet Isaiah that a broken and contrite spirit, a lowly spirit, oh God, you will not despise. We do not fear being broken by your word. We do not fear being brought to a place of humility and lowliness and contrition because it is there that you promised to meet us. So please, Lord, allow your word to have its way with us. Do with us what you will through your scriptures. And please come and meet us wherever you take us. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Sexual sin of various kinds, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, lust, other forms of sexual sin, were a regular part of the world that the earliest Christians of the New Testament inhabited. We know that because sexual sin is addressed in almost every single book of the New Testament, including practically all of the New Testament letters. There are at least eight vice lists in the New Testament. Every one of them includes sexual immorality, with many of them including sexual immorality at the head of the list. Uh, This was a common problem in ancient culture and in the ancient church. Christians lived among sexually immoral cultures such as Rome or Corinth or Ephesus. Many of the first Christians themselves came out of sexually broken backgrounds, a fact that is stated expressly in numerous places in the New Testament. And Christians within the churches themselves, even after they had been converted, been born again, were still wrestling with sexual sin as a kind of ongoing struggle. That is acknowledged plainly in several places in the New Testament letters. Sexual sin was a major issue in the era in which the New Testament was being written, and apparently it was not just an out there problem, it was an in here problem. The earliest Christians sought to live righteously and to follow Christ faithfully in cultures and in contexts that were rampantly immoral sexually. That is the world they inhabited. Now, what about our world and our context 
in our age, I am tempted to say that we live in the most hyper-sexualized age in human history. Uh, however, as I read more of ancient cultures and ancient history, I don't know for sure that I could sustain that claim. What I can say with a high degree of certainty and confidence is that we do live in the most hypersexualized generation in American history, and perhaps in Western history since the Protestant Reformation. I saw a striking illustration of this just this past week. As some of you know, I was in the UK. I was in the UK with a handful of our members, and I was in Oxford University a week ago today. And there in the center of Oxford is the University Church of St. Mary, a church marked with great and storied history. It was in that church that the great Oxford martyrs that were tried by Mary I, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, and Thomas Cranmer. They were tried there. They were then burned on the high street. This is at the time of the English Reformation. Uh, during the Second World War, C.S. Lewis famously gave his weight of glory messages in that same church. In the 1650s, the Puritan John Owen, who had recently been installed as the vice chancellor of Oxford University, preached in that same church the messages that would become his classic work on the mortification of sin, which many of you have read. He preached that material originally as sermons to Oxford undergraduates, young men predominantly who were teenagers, and he taught to them about the need to mortify lust, the need to kill their sin, lest their sin kills them. That was the message preached in that church 400 years ago. And as I was acquainting our group with that story, a female cleric came up to our group at the altar there in the church and said, we're really glad that you're here today. We want to invite you at 11 o'clock to a special pride service that we're going to be having here at the church. We're going to be celebrating the LGBTQ community. Various members and allies of that community will be here. We hope you'll come back at 11. And we just stood there stunned to think that 400 years ago, sexual sin was seen as something to be mortified and to be killed and to be choked out. 400 years on, it is something in the same hall of worship that is to be celebrated, that is to be honored and revered. Our generation is the most hypersexualized generation in American history and in modern Western history. Adultery, fornication, homosexuality, queer ideology, pornography, hookup culture, the sexualizing of social media, these things are not only practiced widely, they are celebrated and displayed publicly. In entertainment, in music and movies, on social media, in corporate culture, in everyday consumer life, sexual sin is everywhere enjoyed and celebrated around us. It has become as American as apple pie. And as we come to the subject of adultery and lust this morning, I'll admit there is a looming and sinister shadow that hovers over my message today, and that is the particular shadow of pornography, which represents one of the most profound existential threats facing the church in our generation. I gave a talk on pornography in this room probably about four or five years ago. I'm going to state again the statistics that I read out then to give you a sense of the scope of the problem, and I assure you these statistics that were collected four or five years ago have not gotten better, but have gotten worse. Of the eight most visited sites in the world, three of them are explicitly pornographic. Porn sites get more visits monthly than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. In 2017, the world's leading porn site received 42 billion 
site visits, an average of over 115 million site visits per day. That's one site. Statistics clearly indicate the vast majority of pornography is consumed by teenagers and people in their 20s. It is not primarily sexually frustrated spouses, uh, though they too are accessing pornography at alarming rates, many within marriage. The average age of exposure to online video pornography is 11 years old. 95 to 99% of boys, 62% of girls are exposed to internet-based pornography in their adolescent years, which means that I assume that every single man who walks through our doors and two out of every three women have viewed pornography. Three-quarters of young people ages 13 to 24 view pornography weekly. Of all pornography consumed by minors, 22% is consumed by children under the age of 10. You think of the brain development, the emotional and psychological development. The data overwhelmingly indicates that those who consume pornography are far more likely to struggle with confusion over sexual orientation, far more likely to seek to alter their gender, far more likely to marry later in life, far more likely to inflict self-harm, far more likely both to engage in sexual assault and abuse and to be victims of sexual assault and abuse, and furthermore, the statistical correlation between porn consumption among minors and suicide is practically irrefutable. Pornography is accessible on most of the major social media apps and websites. TikTok, for example, now purposely, purposely accommodates pornography on their website, most of it coming from amateur teenage girls. I hear parents talk all the time about how they want to protect their kids and how they want to keep their kids safe, and they will stress out over the school choices for their children, uh, what diet their kids have, what extracurriculars they're going to be involved in, and yet I tell you the most serious threat to the health of your children right now is the smartphone in your teenager's pocket. It's the most dangerous object in your home. Lust destroys lives. It destroys families. It's destroying our world. It is the subject of lust that Jesus addresses in our text this morning. I wish to open up these verses under two main headings. We'll spend almost all of the sermon on the first heading, and then we'll close with some points of application. Two headings this morning. Number one, sexual sin is a heart matter. And number two, sexual sin is a serious matter. Sexual sin is a heart matter. Sexual sin is a serious matter. Point number one, sexual sin is a heart matter. Look with me again, if you would, at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus comes now in the Sermon on the Mount to the seventh commandment given in Exodus 20, you shall not commit adultery. And he says that familiar formula, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you. Now again, I remind you, we should not understand by that phrase, but I say to you, that Jesus is taking issue with the seventh, seventh commandment or that he's putting a new law in contrast or in competition with the seventh commandment. Jesus is rather taking issue with a narrow interpretation of the command, which only censors the physical act of adultery, that is, a man or woman engaging in intercourse with someone who is not his or her spouse. Apparently, we're to understand among the scribes and Pharisees, you would have had those who taught 
that as long as you were clear of the act of physical outward adultery, you were honoring this commandment, and Jesus says, not so. There's more to this commandment. Again, Jesus is interested in the heart of the law and not the mere outward legal technicality. Jesus is saying there's more to this commandment than who you go to bed with. He says everyone who looks at a woman, and we could say who looks at a man, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The heart is the issue. What have you desired or imagined or craved or lusted after in your heart? That is the root of adultery. Adultery to Jesus is a heart issue. If you have looked at someone who is not your spouse with covetousness, with lust, for the purpose of gratifying your physical appetites, if you have sinfully desired him or her, you are guilty of violating this commandment in your heart. Thus, the commandment to not commit adultery, originally expressed in Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, encompasses far more than merely the physical act of sexual unfaithfulness. This command encompasses all manner of sexual sin. It would include fornication, mental fantasy, sinful imaginations, the use of pornography, sexual self-stimulation, coveting the body of someone else, sinfully desiring physical intimacy with someone else who is not your spouse, wanting someone else's spouse, to be yours, all of it. Jesus says, don't tell me you've not committed adultery with your body when you've done it already in your heart. Your mind and heart are already there. You've already been with her in your heart. You've already been with him in your imaginations. A kind of adultery already has been committed even if the outward act has not taken place. Now, there are some very reputable, excellent scholars who will argue that the construction of the language in this passage is such that perhaps the primary issue in view for Jesus is not lusting after someone else, but wanting to be lusted after ourselves. The verse might be translated, whoever looks at a woman to make her lust after him has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And there are actually good linguistic and grammatical reasons for thinking that might be Jesus point. I don't interpret the passage that way myself, but whether or not that's Jesus' main point, it's surely at least an application of the principle. We are not to lust after or seek to be lusted after. Young women, young men, older women, older men, do you so badly wish to be desired physically by others? And I'm not talking about wanting to be desired by your spouse. Do you want others to want you? Does the idea excite you and titillate you to know you're being craved, wanted, lusted after? Young women, how much thought do you give to how others will view your body? Do you find yourself desperately wanting to be wanted sexually? Dressing yourself and styling your appearance so as to invite sexual attention. I'm not talking about wanting to be pretty. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm talking about wanting to be sexy. And we all know the difference. People will say things like, you look so hot, girl. You're going to make all the boys go crazy. What are we saying? You're going to make all the boys want to fix their sexual attention on you. 
to want you, to lust after you. It is wanting to be sexually exciting to others. Jesus requires that we are not to lust after, but also that we should not seek to be lusted after. In all these things, Jesus is concerned with our hearts. Jesus is saying, you can be a virgin your whole life and still be guilty of adultery in your heart. This is, at the end of the day, a heart matter. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You can cleanse the outside of the bowl all you want, but I'm interested most in what's within, with inner purity. Well, what does this teaching from Jesus mean for the biblical view of sex and sexual pleasure? People will try to muddy these waters and make the conversation more confusing than it is, but I think the biblical rule is very simple and very plain. We need not be confused about God's will regarding sex and sexual pleasure. The rule is clear, and it is this. The pursuit of sexual gratification and sexual pleasure outside of marriage is sinful, full stop. I am not to indulge in sexual pleasure of any kind unless I do so within the context of a monogamous covenant marriage. Outside of that, I'm not to partake of sexual pleasure. God has created a context in which the good gift of sexual pleasure may be enjoyed safely and maximally. That context is marriage between one man and one woman. Outside of that context, sexual gratification, according to the Bible, is sinful. Of course, within marriage, sex may be fully and freely enjoyed as God's good gift. Sexual pleasure is not the problem at all. Sexual pleasure is a good thing. It is the improper pursuit and enjoyment of sexual pleasure outside the marriage covenant that is forbidden by the commandment. Now look, it's not lost on me how impossibly narrow this view of sex appears by our culture's standards today. But it is nonetheless true. Let God be true and every man be a liar. Though it may sound antiquated, passe, traditional, and narrow-minded, God's will is clear on this point. Indulgence in sexual pleasure outside of marriage is off-limits. My friends, Christ's standard expressed here in this passage is high, and the rule is demanding. I want us to see that this morning. The law of Christ expressed in this text is demanding, but I also want us to appreciate that the law of Christ expressed here in this text is also demanding good. It's demanding for sinners to follow this standard of righteousness. Oh, but friends, the law of the Lord is good. You may be sitting here this morning thinking, this is just like God, isn't it? This is just like uh, Christians, isn't it? Uh, A Christian in your mind is someone who has the sneaking suspicion that someone somewhere is having a good time. And then the Christian comes in, barges in, and has to ruin everybody's pleasure party. Perhaps in your mind you see God as some kind of divine meanie, always holding out on you, trying to deprive you of any pleasure in life, making you sit on your hands and just deny yourself. After all, what's wrong with a little lust? What's wrong, after all, with pornography? What's wrong 
with two people who want to fornicate. If they're both into it and they consent, what after all is the big whoop? I feel these sexual desires within me. Shouldn't I gratify my sexual desires in the way I see fit? Isn't that healthy and normal? Let's interrogate that for a minute. Just take the standard, cultural, mainstream, libertine view of sex. So include in that, my body, my choice. I can have sex with whomever I'd like as long as there's consent. Include in that hookup culture. Young people having sex outside marriage with multiple partners. Include sexual infidelity in marriage, sexual entertainment in movies and music, pornography, throw in LGBTQ behavior and identity. Just the basic mainstream libertine view of sex and sexuality in our culture. Why should these things be problematic or off limits? Why would God have a problem with our culture's attitude towards sex? Well, I'll just ask you, candidly, how do you think it's going? How do you think the approach our culture takes on matters of sex and sexuality, how do you think it's going? Do you actually think our culture's attitude towards sex is helping people, that it's healing people, that it's creating wholeness and safety? and health in our world, that it's making people truly happy, satisfying people, making for a better world. My friend, consider the way sexual license and sexual licentiousness have destroyed families and destroyed lives. It's possible there's not a single person in this room who is unaffected and unharmed by sexual behaviors that God calls sin. Think of the marriages that have been torn apart and ruined by people cheating on one another. For many of us here, our parents would still be together if it weren't for sexual infidelity in our world. Consider the research on outcomes for people who have numerous sexual partners. Young women who are riddled with regret and insecurity over constantly sleeping with different guys. Boys who are unable to understand love and any kind of intimate connection with someone, but only understand the feeling of sexual release who treat their bodies and the bodies of women like sexual objects and sexual playgrounds. Tell me, what is the value added to your life by watching pornography? Do you think you're better off? Do you think you're a better or more whole and healthy person by constantly viewing other people engage in sex with one another, consuming hours of nudity and sexual promiscuity? Is that an ennobling activity? Is it instilling virtue in you? Is it instilling virtue in young people today? Is it making our world a better place? Think of the harm that is done in our over-sexualized culture to children who are being forced to process sex and sexuality at younger and younger ages without the resources to cope with the significance of what's being set before them and thus are being damaged, many of them irreparably. Think of all the traumas The insecurities, the disorders, the anxieties, the dysfunctions developed by the sexual experiences people are having at younger and younger ages as they go from partner to partner and from video to video. You are not meant to have sex with someone and just move on. 
Sex, God tells us, is the bringing together of a man and a woman and making them one, not just in their bodies, but in their souls. It is imprinted on your humanity. Sex isn't a light thing. The hookup culture that is so prominent in high schools and on college campuses and in workplaces, the swipe right culture is not helping us. You are meant for something better than sexual promiscuity, than passing your body around as an object of pleasure. Do you think the libertine view of sex that prevails in our culture is tending toward human flourishing? We live in a sexually broken world. C.S. Lewis captures this in an illustration trying to highlight how sex-obsessed we are in Western culture. He wrote this 60 to 70 years ago, but he talks about what would you think if you discovered a primitive culture somewhere, and at a certain hour of the night, uh, all the men, and maybe some women as well, would congregate in some seedy place, some back room theater or something like that, and there in the middle of the room was a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich uh, covered by uh, some sort of covering. And all they did for the next hours, throw dollar bills up on the stage, and little by little, they would just uncover the sandwich. See a little piece of lettuce, comes up a little higher, you see the tomato, and the last thing before the lights go out is a little piece of bacon. Show's over. You'd think that'd be incredibly weird, wouldn't you? Uh, posters placarded all over town of, of food of everyone obsessing over videos and images of other people eating food. You think something about this culture's attitude toward food is perverse. Something is wrong. And yet what 95 to 99% of teenage young men are doing and 62% of what teenage young women are doing is watching videos of other people having sex with one another. Do you think maybe we're a little sex-obsessed? Do you think maybe we live in a sexually broken world. We are obsessed with sexual pleasure and it's destroying us as a culture. I don't think for a second the culture's attitude towards sex is making our world a better place. But now, with that backdrop, listen to the Christian view of sex and sexual pleasure. Think of a world, imagine a world, in which God's standards regarding sex are perfectly obeyed. What kind of world would we live in if God's law and God's design with regard to sex was upheld? Start with this. God in all goodness and grace designed for human happiness and flourishing a most pleasurable intimacy of sexual union that is meant to be enjoyed within the health and safety and joy of a marriage in which a man and a woman are totally and completely committed to one another in covenant love. And that sounds wonderful. In fact, sex becomes the crowning expression of their total love and commitment to one another. The husband and wife perfectly love one another and give themselves to one another freely. If God's will for sex is followed, there is no sexual insecurity and fear and shame. There is no such thing as sexual trauma. There's no cheating, there's no infidelity, no treating others as sexual objects, no sexual abuse, no family separated ever over infidelity, but rather husband and wife perfectly loving each other, every child safe in the home within the safety and warmth of having a father and mother who are committed to each other. 
And what's more, think of this, the good gift of sex would be enjoyed passionately and devotedly and pleasurably between two lovers completely committed to each other with purity and joy, and listen to this, with a clean conscience. Perfectly safe, perfectly secure, and maximally pleasurable. Just think for a moment about how much better off this world would be if with one swipe of a magic wand we could suck all the adultery in the world in every form, just sucked it all out of the world tomorrow. Think of the wholeness that would create in our world. Think of the health and flourishing. We'd be on the borders of paradise if all sexual sin was gone tomorrow. That is where God's law leads us, to shalom, to wholeness, to health, to prosperity and flourishing. Such a world would be radically different for the better than the world in which we live. But where has the culture's attitude towards sex left us? With broken families, with young people who have no idea who they are sexually, with sexual trauma and abuse, with all kinds of sexual confusion and damage, with a hookup culture that is destroying our daughters and our sons and totally eroding all virtue and wholeness. But then Jesus Christ comes in and He tells you, young women, you're not meant to be bent over and broken and abandoned time after time. You're not meant to treat your body made in the image of God like a hunk of meat to be dangled in front of dogs. Christ tells young men, you were made for more than to be dragged around by your sexual impulses, a slave to the smartphone in your pocket and the desires of the flesh. The Bible comes to young men with an ennobling call to be a man and to flourish and to cultivate the world and to create an atmosphere of safety and wholeness and peace to protect and value women, not to lust after them like some kind of animal, like it's written on your soul, man. God has imprinted this on you to be so much more and better than someone who sees their body as a sexual playground. You are meant for more and better, and Jesus comes to show us the way. The ways of the Lord are good. The law of the Lord is perfect. His laws create safety and health and human flourishing. They rejoice the heart. God's law isn't the problem. Our sin-sick hearts are the problem, and Jesus, in this text, wants to deal with us in our hearts, to cleanse us and to sanctify us at the heart level. That's point number one. I said I'd spend most of my time there. Sexual sin is a heart matter. Secondly, sexual sin is a serious matter. Sexual sin is a serious matter. Verse 29, if your, your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Does anybody believe that anymore? Okay, what is Jesus actually saying here? Let me give you the bottom line, I think, and then we'll consider a couple details. The bottom line is this. If you live your life in sexual immorality and lust, you will go to hell. 
Therefore, exercise all deliberate effort and care to mortify the sin of lust in your heart. If you live your life in sexual immorality and lust, I'm not saying if you commit this sin once or twice or occasionally stumble, but if you live a life devoid of self-control, given over to sexual sin and lust, you will go to hell. Therefore, Jesus says, exercise all deliberate effort and care to mortify the sin of lust in your heart. That's the bottom line. Now, how does Jesus go about making the point? He uses what I think should be understood as rhetorical and metaphorical language. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It'd be better to go into heaven with one eye than into hell with both of your eyes. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It would be better, after all, to go into heaven with one limb than to go into hell with two. Someone might legitimately ask, is Jesus commending self-mutilation here? It's a legitimate question. Uh, the patristic father Origen believed that. He actually gouged his eye out. In that case, I think the brother's sincerity and zeal outstripped his wisdom. Now, as I say that, I don't think that Jesus is commending self-mutilation here, but it's important you hear me when I say this. I am not brushing Jesus aside as too radical when I say that. Well, it just can't be that Jesus' command could be that radical. No, I hope that if the proper interpretation of the text is that we should cut out our eyes, cut off our hands, that we would be ready and willing to do that. I'm not swiping Jesus aside as impractical or too extreme. Jesus has every right to make radical demands for His disciples. But in my study of this passage, I don't think He's actually commending self-mutilation, and I think that for three reasons. First of all, by plucking out your eye or cutting off your hand, it wouldn't address the problem. Jesus' issue is with the heart. You could pluck out both of your eyes and be lusting in your heart and in your mind all day long. I think Jesus is using metaphorical language to describe a spiritual approach of holy violence we should take within our hearts toward our sins. Cutting off the hand is of no use to actually address the heart issue. The second reason I would say this is because I don't think anywhere in the Bible self-mutilation is commended. We have numerous saints we know who struggled with sexual sin. To my knowledge, none of them cut their hands off or plucked out their eyes. In fact, in Romans 7, the apostle Paul seems to be struggling with some sin in the body, and he does not conclude that the proper response is to sharpen the knife. I don't think the Bible commends that. But in the third place, I think Jesus' speech here is of a peace with other sort of spiritually violent language we see in the Bible. Paul says, make no provision for the flesh, but kill its lusts. Put to death, Colossians 3, what is earthly in you. Or as John Owen might say, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. It's referring to a kind of warfare, a spiritual warfare, a spiritual cutting off of eyes and hands, doing violence within our hearts against our sin, choking out our sin, putting to death our sin at the root level, at the heart level. So I don't understand Jesus to be encouraging actual self-harm here, but here's what I do understand Him to be saying. This issue of lust and sexual immorality is a serious matter, and you must exercise all deliberate effort and energy and care to put to death your sin, and it would be better for you to lose actual physical limbs in the fight against sin than for your whole body and soul to be cast into hell. You must make no provision for the flesh. Brother, sister, if you do not deal with your lust, it will drag you down to hell. 
if you don't deal with your porn addiction, if you don't deal with your thought life, if you don't get control over where your eyes go or what you click on or the way you sinfully crave others sexually in your heart or the ways you try to ensnare others to crave you sexually, you will be judged. Jesus is saying this is a serious matter. We must wake up. We must not wink at this sin. Eternity is on the line. Jesus is basically saying, do what needs to be done. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Be done with your sin. Kill your sin. Don't wink at your sin. Don't dress it up in soft phrases and convenient excuses. Cast it off for the love of your own soul and your own body and for the love of God. Turn from this sin that you may live. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Better to say no to sexual sin and be in paradise forever with Jesus than to have all the sexual sinful pleasure this world can give you and to finally go to hell. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In closing, let's consider three points of application together. Three points of application. What do we do with the passage in front of us? How should we respond? Number one, very simply, I think this would be the effect Jesus' words had on his audience. Number one, we should be sobered and humbled by Jesus' standard of righteousness expressed here in this text. We should be sobered and humbled by Jesus' standard of righteousness expressed here in this text. Who among us can come before a text like this, male or female, young or old, I profess a lifetime of purity of heart in these matters. All of us, to some degree or another, come under the indictment of this passage. I was reading a commentary on this passage by one of the men in this world I admire most. And as he was writing his commentary, there's a brief break, and he says, I write these lines with shame in my heart. He's a commentator, New Testament scholar. He's reading Charles Spurgeon on the same passage. And he said a similar thing. He said, is there anyone in this congregation, this mighty congregation, 6,000 who would hear him preach, who could stand before this passage? Well, what should be our response? We should be humbled. There is a kind of sanctified shame we should feel. God, I'm so painfully aware of how short I fall of how many times I've failed this standard. Was it not the same with anger a few weeks ago? It's that way again with lust. We should be humbled. We should be sobered. It should move us to a place of wanting to seek God afresh in a place of humility and sobriety and penitence. All of us should be sobered by the standard. Application point number two. We should recommit ourselves to the Bible's urgent call to mortify the sins of lust and adultery. We should recommit ourselves to the Bible's urgent call to mortify the sins of lust and adultery. Romans 13, verse 13, let us walk properly 
as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Colossians 3 verse 5, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. John Owen in that hallowed pulpit 400 years ago said this to a room full of young men, Do you mortify your sin? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. There is not a day but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed upon, and it will be so while we live in this world. Let not that man think think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. Brothers and sisters, we must be committed to killing our sin. What resources to fight our sin do we have at our disposal? They're numerous. If you're in Christ, first of all, you have a new nature. You are a new creation. Sin does not need to have dominion over you. You are a slave to Christ, not a slave to sin. And with regeneration and new birth comes a new power within you a new nature within you. Brother, sister, you do not have to sin. Once you were dead in sin, once you were a slave to sin, but now through the moral renovation that Christ has brought about, now through the power of a new principle at work within you, through new birth, through conversion, through regeneration, the old can become new, and we can have victory over our sins. You have a new nature with which to fight the sin in your life. Secondly, you have the active ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to exalt Christ within us. The Holy Spirit comes to help us to abide in Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to help us keep the commandments. The Holy Spirit comes to bear fruit in our lives. One of those fruits listed in Galatians 5 is self-control. By the Spirit's work within you, you can exercise self-control. Pray to God today. In this service, ask Him, Lord, enlarge your Spirit's ministry within me that I might fight the lust within my mind and heart. You have thirdly numerous helps in God's Word, which is powerful. The people given up on putting verses on their mirrors, on their dashboards, by the kitchen sink, maybe coming up on your phone, reminders of the words of God which are powerful to help you, to train you, to change you. I remember a few years ago being again in London. There was a pastor I greatly admired and esteemed. He allowed me to come into his office and there over his computer, written large, were the words of David, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I might not sin against you. This is a pastor. This is a holy man. Is he weak, too weak, that he needs the Word of God before his eyes constantly to keep him pure? Yes, he is weak. Weak in the way the Apostle Paul was weak. He knew he needed the Word of God. Are we making use of the Word of God to fight our sins, be it lust or anything else? Fourth, we have the means of grace and the spiritual disciplines. We have prayer. We have the Word of God. We have worship. We have fellowship. We have communion. We have the spiritual disciplines. 
Are we making use of them and leveraging them in our fight against sin? Fifthly, we have the church community surrounded by helpers, those who will bear you up who will, Galatians 5, go after the one who is ensnared in sin and restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Can you go to a brother or sister today and say, hey, I need help in the fight. I'm not embarrassed or ashamed to admit to you I struggle in the area that was talked about in the message today. Can we pray together? Would you call me when I'm alone in the hotel room? Would you care for me? Would you send me Bible verses? Maybe we could send verses back and forth to one another. We could help each other. Can you use the church community and the help to fight against sin? With these resources, we must fight our sin and kill our sin. Now, I don't enjoy talking about this. I said to the Lord this morning, I, I don't enjoy preaching a sermon like this. But friends, if we're going to get serious about fighting lust, we have to talk about pornography. It's unpopular, it's uncomfortable, but if we are to walk in obedience to this text, we have to deal with it. The numbers in the wider culture and within the church demand that we address this issue. I think this is one of the leading existential threats to the church today. I think that our missionary force is easily halved because of pornography. I think that our pulpits are largely empty because of young men riddled with guilt over their porn addiction. I think young people are getting married at later and later ages because of pornography. I think marriages are falling apart. I've seen ample evidence of this in my own ministry. Pornography is having its way with the church. What are we going to do? We're not going to talk about it? We must address it. Brothers and sisters, I implore you, all of us, fight the evils of pornography in whatever form with all your heart like your life depends on it because it does. You can't afford to treat this lightly. You can't afford to hide in the dark. Listen, brother, sister, you can clear your search history all you want. You could try to cover your tracks all you want, but there is a record and a stain that you cannot erase. First of all, there is a digital record. Nothing that is done online is finally anonymous. But more than that, there is a God in heaven who sees, and out of the fear of God, I urge you, be done with it. I further urge you, if you are regularly failing in this fight, seek help and support. Uh, seek it from your pastor. Seek it from a trusted brother or sister, from an older man or woman. Don't hide in the darkness. There are helpers ready to help you. Invite accountability into your life. You may wonder, we talk about this occasionally, but it's worth restating again. It's been a while since I've said it. How would it go for you if you came to me or Pastor Brad or Pastor Ben or Pastor Mike after the service and said, hey, I'm struggling with viewing internet pornography? Well, I can tell you what we're not going to do. We're not going to take you by the hand and drag you down to the front of the church and say, this brother needs prayer. We're not going to shame you or publicly expose you or something like that. We hope to receive you as Christ would. As Christ received the woman at the well in John 4 and revealed himself to her about the living water that is found in Christ. And by his grace, for his glory, 
We'll seek to partner with you in your sanctification to pray for you, to pray with you, to come alongside you. Maybe if you request it, if it's something that can be arranged and would be helpful to you, we know we have brothers in this church and sisters in this church who have said to us we would be happy to help any person who comes forward who's struggling with pornography. Maybe I had a background in that or maybe not. But I want to help. And if you become aware of men and women in our church who are struggling in this area, I want to be a helper to them. We have men and women on file like that who can help you. No, you're not going to be rejected or shamed. This is a sin that is common to man. And it will be treated like the other sins that we see in the Scriptures, the other sins that all of us struggle with. We'll love you and receive you and we'll help you. Further, I would implore you on this issue of pornography. All of us, we need to be willing to make sacrifices and to take significant steps to fight our sin. Here's a radical idea you won't hear from any other place in the world. You don't need a smartphone. You don't need it. Got a buddy, lives here in town. He's got a flip phone because he knows his heart and he knows the temptations that are out there, so he's got a flip phone. Can you survive with a flip phone? Can you make it in this world today with a flip phone? I think you can. But you say, oh, Pastor Alex, that's so impractical. Listen, holiness is never impractical. Righteousness is always practical. And you know what? Making it to heaven is very practical. It's worth every sacrifice. But maybe you've got to have the phone for work or you've got to have it for school, let's say. Well, you know what? There are protections you can put in your phone. They're sometimes inconvenient to work around and to get installed, but there are protections that you could put in your phone. Uh, There are apps that you can delete off your phone, and you can put a password in there that someone else knows where you can't download apps without that password being put in for you. There's all kinds of ways we can change our phones to protect us from viewing Pornography. There are certain apps we don't need. There are certain places online we don't need to go. Now, I'm not going to be some kind of new legalist here and tell you what are the apps that you can and cannot use. But I am going to say this for the sake of our congregation and for the health of our young people. Almost all of the social media apps have pornography on them. I'm not afraid of introducing something new to young people here. Most of them probably know it. TikTok is a pornographic site. Snapchat is a pornographic site. You ever heard of TikTok Live? There's an article in Forbes about this recently. It's a live thing where young girls just post themselves up there, put videos up there, got old men, others in the feed looking at these women. It's a TikTok. Most young people have this app on their phone. Moms, dads, I don't think you should feel bad for a second if you decide you're going to police your children's phone. Let let me just say a word for mama bears in the room. You have every right, regardless of what this sexually sick culture tells you, to monitor the content on your children's devices. And they may say, this is so lame. This makes me unpopular. I hate you. You could endure a little hate, I think. You could endure it. Hate you for a season. But I can tell you, if your child ends up in hell forever, how would they view it? You, you gave me all of this. You never gave me a word of warning. 
You never exercised any sort of oversight or care, and here I am in this place. Why didn't you warn me? Well, we were feeling some pressure by the other moms and dads. Brothers and sisters, don't be ashamed to do your job as a parent. And again, I'm not telling you what to do, what apps to download or not, but I urge vigilance. I think I would be an irresponsible pastor, knowing what I know, not to issue that warning. You don't have to have a TV in your bedroom. You do not have to travel alone. You can change your work to accommodate holiness. You could take the red-eye flight back. But all of us are going out from the office. We're going out for drinks afterwards. And hey, I heard Rachel's going to be there. And you should see her after she has a couple drinks in her. No, I'm getting on a plane and I'm going home to my wife. I'm going to fly through the night to be with her. Because I fear God and not man. And I want to walk in holiness and in virtue and in uprightness. You can change your friend group. You don't have to be the most popular guy or the most popular girl in school. Young men, if the locker room is full of snares for you, you don't have to play high school football. If the sorority, the fraternity, whatever it is, is going to become the locus of sin and temptation, you'll find friends at college, I promise you. You don't need to be there. Again, I'm not telling you you can't play high school football and you can't do Greek life. I'm not saying that. But these environments that become a snare for you, that will drag your soul to Hades, it's worth the sacrifice. Flannery O'Connor says, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you odd. (laughs) We're going to be a little awkward. David Wells says that worldliness is whatever normalizes sin and makes righteousness look strange. Young people, please listen to me. You are not prepared to follow Jesus if you are not prepared to appear a little bit odd by the world's standards. You are not prepared to follow Christ unless you are prepared in some ways to bear His reproach. You tell me, what is a bigger stigma for you, high school students, college students? What's a bigger social stigma that you hooked up with some guy or girl last weekend, or that you're still a virgin. People will say you're weird, they'll call you a prude, they'll look at you sideways, but you must make a choice. Do you serve God, or do you serve man? Do you live for the world to come, or for the passing pleasures of sin? There is so much about what God has been pleased to do among the young people of our church that is encouraging to me. But I say this in all sincerity, as one of your pastors, I'm concerned for some of you. There are some of you in whom I see too much of a love for the things of this world, too easily influenced by the culture. The applause of man, the pleasures the world will offer you, being received by the world, it's too much with you. Have you heard of Demas? Do you know Demas? Second Timothy 4, he apostatized. He left the faith, went back into the world. Do you know why Paul says? 
because he was in love with this present world. Friendship with the world is enmity against God. Young people, I just encourage you in the comfort of this building, surrounded by people who know and love you, who pray for you, you need to make a decision. Am I sold out? Does Jesus get a blank check? Am I following him? No turning back, no turning back. Or will I try to serve God and mammon? Will I try to keep one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world? John tells us all that is in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. No, we can't have our share of worldliness and expect that we will be there on that great and final day. To have victory in the fight against lust, we must care more about God's approval than about man's approval. I am going to take steps to keep myself pure, whatever they may be. I'm going to pluck out eyes and cut off hands. I'm going to do what it takes to put sin to death. May we all recommit ourselves to the Bible's urgent call to mortify the sins and lusts of the flesh. The third and final point, I'll simply state it briefly. We should run to Jesus with all our sexual brokenness and sexual sin and find in Him forgiveness and help. How should we respond to this message? How can we apply it to our lives? We should run to Jesus with all our sexual brokenness and sexual sin and find in Him forgiveness and healing. This is a room full of sexually broken people. We're all sexually broken in some way or another. This church needs to be the kind of environment where people, when they disclose their sins, will receive gospel help. They won't be treated like lepers. No, they'll be seen as those who, like all of us, are ensnared by sins in various ways, and the remedies we will apply will be gospel remedies. Brother, sister, there's forgiveness to be found in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You could sin 70 times 7, and yet the Lord will still forgive you. He will not repay. He will throw our sins into a bottomless ocean. He'll save you. He'll forgive you. He'll have you. We should speak that way to those among us who are ensnared by sexual sin. And remember, friends, the context in which this sermon is given, this command is given, to pluck out eyes and to cut off hands. What were the first words that Jesus said in this Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You sit here in this sermon and you just feel like a weight of guilt has washed over you. And you think, I am a mess, I'm a pervert, I sin in so many ways, I'd be embarrassed if the people around me knew what was going on in my life right now. I have nothing to offer, I have nothing to give. That is the place where Christ is pleased to meet you. And to such people who know their poverty of spirit, who say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. The kingdom belongs to them. They will be received by the Lord Jesus. Not those who hide away in sinful pride, but those who come to Him poor in spirit. And then He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You mourn over your sin and your sexual brokenness, what you've done or what's been done to you. Blessed are they that mourn, for God Himself will be their comforter. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want so badly a clean 
conscience. I don't want to sin. I want to, the, the purity that is being described, I want that for my life. Blessed are you, for you will be satisfied. And friends, what greater incentive to purity can I give? In those words of Jesus, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You need deeper wells of pleasure, eternal pleasure. If you're going to defeat your sin, what greater pleasure can there be than we redeemed creatures standing in the presence of the glory of God and beholding Him through Jesus Christ for all eternity. Blessed are the pure, for they will see the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're, we're broken in so many ways, not just sexually, in all kinds of ways, in thought and word and deed. We can't hide from you. you. You know our hearts better than we know them. You see all of our sins and failings. What a thought that you would be willing to love us still through the merits of your own dear Son. Our only hope is in that love that we sinners such as we are could be justified through faith in Christ in light of all that we've done. Can be your own dear children, can be cleansed from the heart, can be washed, and could have these sins that make us so ashamed actually removed from us as far as the east is from the west. For any here who has struggled with lust and adultery and sexual sin, how much we would love to be released from these sins that so easily ensnare us. Would you please do the work of saving us and cleansing us? Give the new birth to us. Give the full measure of your Holy Spirit to bear fruit in our lives. Work within us faith-fueled and Spirit-empowered effort in the fight against sin to mortify our lusts, to live in purity and wholeness and in righteousness. We pray, Father, that Emmanuel Church, through the gospel of Jesus Christ that is preached, would become a safe haven and a kind of house of healing for sexually broken people all over this community, that they would come, that they would find healing in life and forgiveness, restoration, renewal, everlasting life. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen.